Welcome, my dystopians. I'm Raul Guerrero, and you are listening to the Dystopian Republic. Today's story begins on the midday of November 11th, 1984. Trails and facilities lined and sat within Camp Sunshine's acres of lively forest and bold meadows. At its parking area, Chloe had no problem bravely readying herself for whatever she was about to endure while Devon's strong frown was internally crumbling. Erasmo, Basilia, Olivine, and Yailene were on the same revenge-hungry boat, but where they resided on that vessel varied in firmness and had differing purposes. For Chloe and Devon, their weight for Yellow Wasp, Ephialtes, to do its worst, sat near them like a vulture preparing for its next two feasts. Their apprehension was made worse by a fourth bus arriving, its kids uneasily stepping out and being hustled into lining up. Chloe's resolve languished and Devon's face was made aghast by Adria Madeira timidly quaking and Kitty Hinojos easing her shakes with her warm, squeezing hands. When the sisters and friends saw each other, one pair was on its knees for the other's help. It was the first time Chloe and Devon had seen Audria and Kitty since their week of camp. Duilio, Erasma, Ladislao, Isara, Nicanor, Rayan, Aurelio, and Tecla emerged from the administrative cabin A1 in a vertical line. Their formation swayed to a horizontal one upon stepping onto where all the teens were. They each took charge of the first eight lines and instructed their children to do the same with the last four. Chloe and Devin watched Duilio be their line's leader and Nicanor be the one in control of Audria, Kitty, and the others in their group. All the while, there were way more Yellow Cross troops callously and thoroughly keeping guard than any kid or adult could count. One hundred yards from the parking area was a walking path that zigged and zagged fifty feet up to a helipad. Harsh chops from a helicopter pushed around the trees and blew dirt, leaves, and wood chips everywhere. Long hairs moved over eyes, flapped on cheeks, and pulled toward the wind as the yellow-crossed chopper landed. The roofless boots stepped out stomped their walk down the path and firmly stood as one before the collection of humanity that aroused prideful scowls out of those who led the lines and froze with fear the kids who were under their direction. The person at the wheel of the assemblage was Richelieu, fourth in line to the Yellow Cross rulership. It was her honor to welcome the kids to the first Subchapter of the Colchester chapter of the Yellow Cross Education Front. Richelieu gave them a smile that shined like pearls, smelled of yellow roses, and had the wholesomeness of a princess from way up north. Her decision to get right into the learning ignited a psychotic onrush of orders for the kids in line to get down like dogs, fearing harm or worse. Most oppressees complied without a hem or hue, while Chloe, Devon, Audria, and Kitty stood their ground. 
Richelieu told the leaders that they knew how to respond, warning them of the hell they'll pay if they forgot their training before departing with her subordinates. All eight parents knew of the rivalry their kids had with the sisters and best friends. This took Duilio to the decision of suspending Erasmo, Basilia, Olvin, and Yailin's line-leading duties, instructing four of the guards to temporarily assume their roles. Erasmo ordered her son and his friends to transfer Chloe, Devin, Audria, and Kitty to Sunflower Village and make them feel the wrath of Gregorio Jr. Erasmo told his mother that he, Basilia, Olvin, and Yailin would do just that gladly. As her order was being carried out, Kitty kept her cool as Chloe had a hard time doing so, but Devin freaked out and Audria was the most hysterical of all. The other kids saw the variety in reaction and breathed them in for all they were worth, planting a seed that was willing to stop at nothing to grow and thrive. Sunflower Village had more of a kindergarten flavor than an outdoorsy one, with its playful paints, adorable playsets, and little cabins. Yellow wiry fencing circled and rose to a curved, disc-shaped peak over the apparent school. Guards were forcing the sisters and best friends to move toward the dome when Erasmo instructed them to stop short of opening the door and let him and his friends speak to the scum directly. Chloe, Devin, Audria, and Kitty were roughly grappled into looking at their oppressors. For the sisters, the faces before them bore no resemblance to their ex-goodwillers. All Chloe and Devin could see were aggressive markings and grating bands, but that was tame compared to what Audria and Kitty were discerning. Basilia said it was time for the oppressors to lose time the same way she and her friends had parts of their lives taken away. Yailin told the sisters and best friends not to let their coming subjugation register in their minds as a labor of vengeance. Olvin wanted the oppressees to see the discipline as an opportunity to feel his and his friends' suffering. Kitty tried very hard to not be phased by his contented, soothing, chuckling breath. Chloe felt her spine freeze as Devin experienced a similar temperature drop with her sweat, but Audria cried like she was in kindergarten again. Erasmo told the guards to throw the oppressies into cabin S1, where their impurities will exit. The sisters and best friends were body slammed onto the thinly carpeted floor, then shackled by their ankles to a dense pole that was nailed into the horizontal walls. Erasmo told them that it would be some time before they get to see the consequences of their actions, advising them to get comfortable in the meantime. His slamming of the door hit the sisters and best friends with the full picture of their situation. Even though the girls were completely in Gregorio Jr.'s clutches, the one blessing they could count was that they were together. 
Kitty succeeded in breaking Audria out of her distress by repeatedly whispering to her that everything was going to be okay. Devin really wanted to believe in her assurances, but feared that they were just words. Chloe was afraid to find out what lurked behind the thick black curtains that spared only the floor and pole of its concealment. She came close to giving her oppressors credit for going the extra mile to precisely cut and staple the rayon around the pole's bolted ends. The girls were unaware of what was being done to the other oppressors, but ideas began to run through their minds when vague activity hit their eardrums. Chloe and Devin were fortunate to have been well-nourished prior to their forced transfers. The same could not be said for Audria and Kitty, whose parents were two of the first to be killed during the election night massacres at the guns of the very guards helping their oppressors. Not having a bite or sip since lunch the previous afternoon, the best friends were hungry and thirsty, forcefully keeping those discomforts at bay by using the other's kind-hearted gaze to muse on the years they've spent as two halves of one butterfly. Audrey and Kitty first met when they were assigned the same cabin during the 1979 outdoor education trip. Back then, Camp Sunshine was the place where kids lived with Mother Nature and under her house rules. Until 1997, Amacidia Lake had no trails, cabins, offices, parking, or anything man-made for that matter. Kitty had a spine tougher and sharper than a fire iron, while Audria's backbone was that of a kitten afraid of its own shadow. Their first interaction was when they were hiking buddies, discovering what they lacked in the other. Kitty wanted to be responsible for someone else's well-being, while Audria had longed for a long-term protector. They sharply turned out of the trail and into a meadow where its edges went up to their knees, then fell to their midsoles 75 yards in. Audria and Kitty strolled into an iron heart that was centered in a circular break from the grass. Stepping onto its unfilled interior, they securely held hands, letting the peaceful morning overwhelm them. That was the point where the best friends saw the expressive rocks running along, the finesse silvery gray from the inside and outside. Audria swore on her life to always be loyal to Kitty, whether in times of light, darkness, or where the two alloyed into one. The sincerity in her pretty but uneasy voice was as beautiful as diamonds fresh out of the unhydrated soil. Kitty made it her life's mission to protect Audria from any and all who sought to harm, abuse, or neglect her. The probity in her serious yet nurturing tongue had the pureness of a baby smiling at her mother. Although that memory was more than five years old, its heavenly scent hit Audria and Kitty as if its aerosols had hit their sinuses seconds ago. They were going to need all the good smells they could get to weather their extended stay, and so would Chloe and Devon. 
at the first day's last second, the girls sustained aches duller than pencils that have never undergone a turn in the sharpener. But when the clock struck midnight, so did their bladder and colon's needs to force out its contents. The girls tried to hold in their urine and feces, denying themselves of any night's sleep. Their captivity continued through the next day and night, ending on the sunrise of the third. Heavy lifting and intensive working could be heard but not seen from in the cabin. When the noises stopped, Erasmo entered with Basilia, Olvin, and Yailin in his charge. Three of the longest, lingering, most powerful, and evil-smelling odors assaulted their nostrils. Erasmo's tolerance for the stench allowed him to make fun of the sisters and best friends for reeking worse than dead animals in an old dumpster. Basilia chuckled at his light-hearted sneer even as the smell mal-odored the air from pole to door. Yailin hid her utter revulsion for the sisters and best friends' estates in back of her shaky grin. Unable to take the filth any longer, Olvin reminded his friends that they had work to perform on their detainees. That snapped Basilia and Yailin into forcing their breakfasts in their stomachs while helping him and Erasmo unshackle the sisters and best friends. Urine, feces, vomit, and drool fouled Chloe, Devin, Adria, and Kitty's clothes whole. The girls looked as though they had been partly buried in sludge, almost having its odor marinated all the way down their epidermises. Chloe was ready to hop madder than a rabid bunny, and Devin desired to beg her captors to take her back home. Adria's noisy crying had numbed to shivers that were ill at ease, but Kitty's fortitude at that point was the same one she had when she was first shackled. Erasmo and Basilia rudely stood up the sisters by their shirts' shoulders. Then Olvin and Yailin used the best friends' belts to heave them upright. That was when the toe and fro between the oppressors and oppressees would cacophonously pull toward one side. Kitty was nearly shook up by how sedulous Yailin was in running her sturdily gloved hands through any space where a weapon could be hidden. The last thing Audrey expected to see in Olvin was him sharing in her shakiness while patting her down. Basilia didn't let herself be touched by Devin's low-spirited attempt to bludgeon her conscience. Erasmo finished frisking Chloe, had her face him, and said that today was the day of the week when dogs like her need to be cleaned. Her anger's pounce made its impact felt by shooting a pale-colored slime that went splat all over his nose, lips, cheeks, and eyelids. Tasting and smelling stomach matter, Erasmo ran a hunter knife into and across the lower third of Chloe's left exterior oblique. Her shriek and fall down gave Devin, Audria, and Kitty a shock that led to the fright that overcame them when they saw blood come out of her wound through her shirt and onto the floor by the gush. Erasmo ordered his friends to wash the other girls as planned while he gives Chloe a very, very special cleaning. Basilia had the guards take Devin, Audria, and Kitty into the bottom 
of an empty outdoor pool that was a big drain screen. Olvin got those same people to rapidly and strenuously tear off all the girls' clothes, leaving them to dread whatever was lying in wait. Yailin told the guards to screw them in, turn on the power, and blow like there was no tomorrow. Eighteen heavy-duty garden hoses brutally streamed bone-chilling water on Devin, Audria, and Kitty, hurting them into splitting ears with their screaming. Their bodies were the exterior paints that the sprays were tasked with cleansing, ignoring the paints printing on their skin cells and clobbering their nerve fibers. Devin, Audria, and Kitty were enduring too much to even give a thought to how worse their ally was faring. The guards sat and strapped Chloe to the clinical Cabin S4's patient chair, having an easy time doing so thanks to her wound making it too painful to fight. They snipped part of her shirt off, revealing her torso and the puncturing slash it obscured. Erasmo completed the opening of Chloe's wound and pressed a thinly funneled bottle against it. She wailed as he pushed rubbing alcohol into her injury with such force that it flowed over the cut and on the skin at her torso and hip. The isopropanol Erasmo used was so strong that it caused the affected area to break out in a rash. Chloe wailed even louder when she felt the rubbing alcohol acidically burn the inside of her wound. Erasmo hurried his guards into drenching with water where he poured the isopropanol, stopping its properties from giving Chloe any lasting damage. He lightly dipped a wet wipe in a container of iodine and rubbed her cut and nearby skin with it. His guards forced her wound shut as he stitched it into staying that way with thick staples. Chloe found some solace in the bothersome pressure being applied, preferring to deal with that over the stab or rubbing alcohol any day. Her calm was quickly erased like an undesired chalk drawing when Erasmo told her that the rest of her cleaning awaited. The village's managerial cabin S9 was where a walk-in shower stall with a prison door fired water out of its walls the way an automatic car wash would. Through the brick-shaped window from outside, Erasmo unmercifully watched his cleaning go on and on until it dinged its start-finish bell. He waited for the steam to settle, then backed away to allow his guards to step inside, force Chloe up, extract her from the stall, and get her face-to-face -face with him. Much of her skin looked as if it had been bathing in the sun for a minute or two too long. Chloe was too sore to do anything other than give Erasmo her most dire scowl. Not intimidated by how forbidding she looked, he enjoyed seeing her show how badly she wanted to maul him like a ticked-off lioness. Erasmo told Chloe that she now knew how he felt when her liberal lapdogs locked him and his friends up. She yelled that those quote-unquote leftists handed him Basilia, Olvin, and Yailin the power they're sicking on her 
Devin, Audria, Kitty, and every other oppressee in the camp. Erosimo called what Chloe yelled the biggest crock of excrement he ever heard, taking a big swig of his canteen and expelling it on her face. Breaking out of the guards' holds, she knew her freedom wouldn't last long, using it to crouch forward, grab hold of his testicles, and squeeze them as hard as she could. Chloe regained a lot of the solace she lost just by hearing Erosmo scream and desperately beg the guards to get her off of him. She suddenly felt several obstructions to her breathing set in simultaneously, leading her to find herself being choked. Chloe added a few more seconds to her hold before letting go to avoid getting herself suffocated. Erasmo spent a couple minutes getting over his pain and checking his groin for any bruising or bleeding. His relief over finding nothing that warranted immediate medical attention turned to rage when he saw a thoroughly shackled Chloe get back her breath. Erasmo said that he ought to execute her and turn her into animal feed for the insanity she just perpetrated. Chloe told him to look at who was talking about her being irrational, telling him to look in the mirror if he wanted to see someone in such a state. Erasmo slapped her mouth's taste away as an expression of his affront toward that remark. Chloe was saved from any foolhardy actions when Duilio walkie-talkied his order for his son, Basilia, Olvin, and Yailin, to reintegrate the sisters and best friends with the other oppressies. To Erasmo, what his dad instructed him to do irritated him, but he sucked up his annoyance and told the elder Castanati daughter that she was lucky. Directly in front of Sunflower Village, West Auroraville and East Auroraville appeared to be one subcamp at first glance. The Vils nestled over the front half of the village, acting as the grounds where the big kids rested and played. At the east-west dividing line, Devin was glad that Chloe was fairly okay and casually dressed like she, Audria, and Kitty were. She gave the village one last look back and recalled the wall-like brush around its back half, recognizing the area beyond it as the former Dion Town, a double-sized subcamp that had been out of service since an incident in 1982 that made salvaging it an impossibility. The sisters and best friends noticed that the guards were taking them in four different directions, heading northwest. Chloe couldn't stomach seeing Devin shake and bleat as she was being forced to move southeast. Going northeast, Kitty sustained a sobering dent to her fortitude when she saw Audria be beside herself with her pleas to be saved as the guards walked her toward the southwest. Chloe was thrown into cabin W6, cradled above an archery range and baseball field. Cabin E15, Devon's assigned house, shortened her walk to the basketball court to 90 seconds. Audria found herself in cabin W15, which had the easiest and fastest access to the dining hall. Kitty became the latest member of cabin E6, located between the climbing wall and auditorium.
now so far apart, the sisters and best friends only had their new cabin mates to interact with. West Auroraville and East Auroraville each had 18 cabins that contained two double bunk beds for the four kids they each housed. In the time that the sisters and best friends were being punished, the other oppressies were shockingly beaten with hard gloved punches, still reinforced kicks, and airflow hold paddles. Insufficient nourishment and everlasting insults came between and ran parallel to the violence inflicted on them. The sisters and best friends were dumbstruck at how their cabin mates were no better off even though they seemed to have fallen in with what Duilio and company ordered them to do. Rexam Antunez, Martibel Garcia, and Ulrich Loyola resentfully stared at Devon, scaring away her greetings and condolences. Coming in Adria's comforting aid, Elmiria, Rincon, Sheridan Rios, and Willa Herrera found that their grief over the loved ones they lost in the massacres wasn't a teardrop less intense. Confident that Isaias, Perez, Sonsoles Ortega, and Clement Hierro will talk to her eventually, Kitty decided to keep the births she was giving them rather wide. Chloe gently asked Palmer Velasco, Sullivan Uvalle, and Cybella Alamila what happened to them and the other oppressies, causing their tempers to be lost. Wrexham found it insulting that Devon would cower in the presence of kids like him who bore the full brunt of Duilio's so-called lecture. Audria felt her heart glue itself back together when she sensed that Elmiria, Sheridan, and Willa were in abysses grimmer than her own, impelling her to be to them what Kitty was to her. Sonsoles enjoined Kitty not to hold out hope that she would suck it up and befriend her like an orphaned puppy. Clement gave her in a gasp, oh come on, while Isaias pleaded with her not to say it that way. Sonsoles reminded them that it was the defiance Kitty took part in that made their initial days absolute hell. Sullivan asked Chloe if she Devon, Audria, and Kitty honestly thought that their little act of defiance would only affect them. Not allowing Devon to squeak an answer out, Ulrich said that he and everyone else were hurt a lot more because of that refusal to comply. After the sisters and best friends were taken away, the other oppressies were forced to run laps around the two Aurorvilles. Any kid who couldn't run or do so fast enough faced a flurry of whips that did more to impair their stamina than improve it. A former cross-country champion, Wrexham, had no problem keeping pace, but the source of his ire was seeing Marty Bell be punished for her inability to accelerate above her slow jog. An hour went by before the running grew boring commencing a paroxysm of beatings that weaponized the archery range, baseball field, basketball court, and climbing wall. The batterings were structured like clinics where recipients waited in line for their turn to be the bags 
for their oppressors to strike on. Isaias took his share of Captain E6's beatdown without tears or cries, while both reactions poured and wailed out of Sonsoles. Like the running, the novelty of the batterings too ran their course, leading to nourishing hours at the dining hall that were surprisingly reposeful. Palmer didn't think of any questions and focused on relishing every bite and sip of the delicious calmness. But Clement finished his meal in anticipation of having to give it back afterwards. When dessert came, the oppressies were given the best smoothies many of them have ever tasted, enjoying the flawless balance of sweet and sour. But a short time later, those who consumed the drink came down with a nausea that culminated in the expulsion of everything they ingested since entering the dining hall. Cybella refused to let what her oppressors pulled reduce her to the anguish swamping Sullivan. Once the vomiting settled to a gag here and there, the oppressors were thrown back into their assigned cabins to spend the night sitting in their queasy states. Ulrich toughed through the nausea and crushed his body's hourly attempts to expel the few calories he was able to keep in his stomach while Elmuria just could not do that. The next day was a repeat of the first, but the running water each cabin had made those hours survivable. Fortunately for the oppressees, day three was not an imitation of the previous two, but it was one where they contemplated whether they'll be loyal or resist to the bitter end. That pondering was interrupted by a fracas every kid and their cabin mate could hear. The quarreling went on for an incredible 53 minutes, but then it stopped as suddenly as it started, leading to Duelio announcing for everyone to report to the auditorium. There, 140 of the oppressees filled the venue to capacity as guards left no inch of inner and outer wall uncovered or in any blind spots. Duelio stood from the row of seats lining the stage as his adult and teenage cronies vainly stared on, declaring the Yellow Cross's judicial front as being in session. He requested that his guards bring to him the four who must lay on the beds they've made. Every kid seated recognized the three boys and one girl being brought on stage as being from cabin E18. Willa wasn't surprised that the quartet was at the center of the fighting, having experienced their appetite for mayhem herself. Sheridan didn't have any love for the kids from E18 either, but that mattered less than what he feared was about to unfold. Duilio had his guards kneel the four he condemned before an audience of their peers. He told the kids from E18 that they flunked out of their purification and made that failure unpardonable by taking four of his nationalists away from him. Handcuffed, blindfolded, and wounded by gunfire, 
the four Duilio condemned pointed their faces downward, but showed little emotion. Bracing for a demise, they resigned themselves to. Duilio said that normal circumstances would dictate that he, his associates, and guards be the ones who'd carry out the sentences. He added that the grisly act of rebellion and earlier display of defiance convinced him that the sentences should be carried out in a manner that serves as a warning and acts as a reason to be or remain loyal. Duilio brought everyone's attention to his lottery ball machine, which contained the letter numbers of almost every cabin. He explained that he'll randomly take a ball out, and the group that gets selected will be the four who'll carry out the sentence. Duilio's turning of the machine made every quartet pray that their letter number does not get called. He abruptly halted the machine and waited for the balls to stop rolling around. Duilio stuck his hand inside, splashed the balls around, took one out with his thumb and index finger, looked at it, smiled, and announced that Cabin W1 was the chosen quartet. Every pair of eyes turned to the front rows for leftmost seats, focusing on Stanton Ochoa, Poppy Montero, Flossie Domingo, and Charlie Guernica. The cabins that weren't chosen were glad that they didn't have to make a choice that damned them no matter what. Yet, their fear over what awaited their eyes and ears wasn't as sharp as the freezing terror Stanton, Poppy, Flossie, and Charlie were in. The four from W1 wanted to run but saw no blind spot they could utilize, agitating them into staying seated even as Duilio ordered them to get on the stage. Three warning shots to the ceiling straight above didn't get Stanton, Poppy, Flossie, or Charlie to stand up, but four more to the floor between their feet did. The kids from W1 stumbled to the steps, up them, and onto the stage slower than centenarians walking through a blizzard. Duilio directed them to stand right behind their condemned counterparts, showing the audience how they so badly desired to sob their eyeballs out. He told the kids from E18 that a jury of their peers had found them guilty of the crime of aggravated murder. Duilio said that four of his associates will now hand their W1 opposites the guns that'll be used to fire into them their sentences. Tears rolled down Stanton, Poppy, Flossie, and Charlie's cheeks as they were given the pistols. Turning to the audience for sympathy, they were dismayed to only see noiseless pleas for them not to kill their E18 peers. Stanton was doing a fairly good job keeping his saddened self from melting out of its solid, frosty composure. Poppy kept her breakdown at bay by telling herself that she was simply doing what her oppressors ordered her to do. Duilio instructed the kids from W1 to raise their arms, aim at the backs of the skulls in front of them, and pull the trigger. Charlie's spirits were collapsing like an unstable tower, 
finding herself between her will to live and desire not to have a death on her conscience. Annoyed with her and her cabin mates' hesitations, Duilio stated that they were to carry out the sentences before he counts down to zero or they'll too have lead fired through their skulls. The fourth from W1 heard their expiries approach them in taking tandem with his countdown from ten. Duilio's count was down to five when Erasmo, Basilia, Olvid, and Yailin aimed their pistols at them with an eagerness for eight blood splats for the price of four. Flossie unpleasantly pulled a face over the audience's disinclination to rise up and fight. That told her, Stanton, Poppy, and Charlie that it was every cabin for itself dissolving their disinclinations to execute their condemned counterparts. The bullets they fired through the kids from E18 went off like bombs in the ears of the audience, but pleasantly surprised their oppressors. Stanton and his cabin mates watched the for-they-executed roll over the stage just inches from the front row. Four pools of blood became one, spilling its way over to the shoes of cabins W2 and W3. The kids from W1 wrapped their heads around the fact that they've committed an act that could never be undone, saluting their allegiance to the Yellow Cross. Disgusted over the executions, Kitty was numb to the defection, viewing it as two scums finding each other. Devin couldn't exaggerate how appalled she was to see four whom she fought were on her side sell their souls to their oppressors. About to be repulsed herself, Chloe noticed the cords that the defection was starting to strike in some of the other cabins. While glad to see some quartets refuse to turn traitor no matter what, Kitty realized that she was mistaken to assume that every oppressee would resist. Chloe now had to be prepared to battle her fellow oppressees as well as their oppressors. Feeling the fear Elmiria, Sheridan, and Willa had over their lives, Audria had second thoughts about resisting Duilio or his ilk, increasing the importance she placed on staying alive. Regardless of sentiment, however, Everyone in Camp Sunshine knew darn well that their time within one ground was only beginning, and as fate would have it, the days that followed would make the pangs that plagued the initial three minor in comparison. And that was the direful initials. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave Share this show with everyone you know. Make sure they share it with everyone they know. Check out my website at www.rss.com slash podcasts slash the dystopian republic. Send me your respectful questions and constructive feedback at raulguerrerojr95 at gmail.com. And lastly, support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypalme slash Raul Guerrero Jr. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, 
and sinister episodes of the Dystopian Republic. <laughs>